Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Today I'm very excited to have on the show someone I've admired for years, Dan Carlin, a professional journalist and broadcaster who has been podcasting for more than a decade and has two of the most popular podcasts in the world, Common Sense and Hardcore History. If I could only recommend one podcast to someone, I'd recommend Hardcore History hands down, especially the monumental six-episode Death Throes of the Republic, which just blew my mind. Dan Carlin, welcome to the Politics Guys. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm really glad to be talking to you today, and not just because I'm a longtime Hardcore History fan, but because I think that all too often when we talk about political issues – We do it in this sort of ahistorical way, which at least I think really impoverishes our understanding of events. Uh, Would would you agree with that? When you say ahistorical way, what do you mean? In the sense that we don't seem to have any good sense of what happened more than a few years back, I suppose. I think think that's totally uh, justified. I think that it's a a context question that's difficult, and I think that part of the reason – And I think you see it more and more, although politicians have always been able to use this tactic. The reason you see politicians more and more say things that they know the minority of people who are up on current events know is not true is because they can get away with it because so many of the electorate doesn't know it's true. And and that's partially because, you know, let's be honest, we have a lot of 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 23-year-olds, people who didn't live and don't have very long memories of what went on before. But we have people that are old enough who should know better. Who don't remember what came before and without that it's like trying to base a judgment you know without having any idea of what's come before you it's really hard to have any sense of context and so yes i think it affects the system i'm not so sure we can't pretend that i mean it's, it's not a new thing perhaps i think the idea of the uninformed voter without a lot of context may go back to the beginning of the republic right now looking at polls today it seems more likely than not that Hillary Clinton will be the next president of the United States, meaning, and in fact, if that's the case, either a Clinton or a Bush will have won the presidential election six out of the last eight times. And I'm wondering, is that, do you think that's the sign of a sort of a sclerotic political system that's heading for a fall? Well, I'm not so sure we're not a, not a political system heading for a fall for the reasons you mentioned, but I don't think the idea of political dynasties are necessarily the reason why. Uh, I think we've had them, I mean, since the beginning. You remember we had a couple of Adamses in mm-hmm. office. We had a couple of Roosevelts in office. We could have had a bunch of Kennedys in office if things had, had broken down differently. So I think these political dynasties in American history, while not common, are really not unheard of. And I think there's a certain understanding that once somebody gets that high profile, they have an innate advantage over unknowns trying to break into the system. And obviously, a lot of these families, take the Kennedys, had all sorts of uh, financial reserves and other things that gave them advantages. So I don't think that's that unusual. I, I do think that that it, it kind of shows a lack of um, a lack of deep attempts, maybe at trying to look outside the, the usual suspects, maybe. 
And maybe that's a sign of the calcification of the two-party system, which has been going on a long time. Those are the easy picks, maybe you could say. But let's let's be honest. I mean, I don't think the Bushes did very well, particularly in this election. I don't think uh, Hillary Clinton did particularly well in 2000, uh, you know, when she was running against Barack Obama the first time. Um, So so I don't know. I, I do think the system is definitely getting a hardening of the arteries sort of feel. I don't know how much of a role having the same family names in the elections plays in that. I can't quantify that. Right. I mean, in, in a system that, at least in theory, we pride ourselves on our openness and ability to, to rise and move forward and so forth, I, I guess some people would see this and say, well, the system is rigged. And it sounds like, in part, you, you might say, well, the system has always kind of been rigged in that sense. Well, and the hardest part is getting notoriety and name recognition. Sure. If you're if you're Donald Trump and you've never held political office, but you've been in the public eye for a long time, you start off with a huge advantage. If your name is Clinton or Kennedy or Bush or once upon a time Adams, you start off with an innate advantage. It gives you a sort of a lead at the beginning of the race that's hard to it, – it's hard for the other candidates to overcome, and I think it's hard for the parties to simply say – um, no, we don't want that. I mean, it, it, let's say you, you're a Democratic Party and you want to beat the Republicans in the presidential election and one of your candidates has a very recognizable name from the get-go. Well, that's a huge advantage. I mean, they may not, they may not win across the board in terms of their positives versus their negatives, but starting off with a lot of name recognition, um, they call that a Q rating, I think, in television, that's a big help. And, and I think the parties who are out to win take that into account. Sure. Well, you mentioned Donald Trump, and I'm curious what you make of him. Uh, you know, I've heard plenty of uh, comparisons to Mussolini, but to me, I, maybe this is just my American politics background, but I'm wondering if he's more of a sort of a Huey Long type figure, or or maybe is he that rarest of rare things in political life, uh, a true original? Oh, he reminds me more of some of those very rich men in the Roman Republic, like Marcus Licinius Crassus. <laughs> People like that, although Crassus would have been like one of the richest men. I mean, the funny thing about Trump is, is with all of his wealth, he's not on He's nowhere near the top 10 list or anything like right. that. Um, Huey Long, I don't like the comparison. I think the only thing they have in common is they're both kind of reaching toward the populist sort of an appeal. But Huey Long, let's remember, at one point, the guy was both a senator and a governor of a, of a U.S. state. He had all these ideas for, I mean, the every man a king, all these semi-sophisticated, maybe you could say, ideas for reform. He was a much more formidable character in a, in a governmental sense. Um, I see them as really different. Now, Huey Long is just as controversial in terms of whether or not you consider him a positive or a negative figure. Right. To me, I, I see Trump as more of one of those rich men from the late Roman Republic. And it, it's hard not to see a little Mussolini or or Berlusconi in him, just the posturing seems to be so Italian dictator on the veranda-like. Um, right. But but I don't see it like Hitler. I don't see it with that sort of you know super uh, horrific connotation. It's just sort of a certain amount of braggadocio, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, one thing I think, well, there are a lot of things that Americans don't, I think, fully appreciate about politics. But one thing in particular is how much control the bureaucracy has. And if for no other reason, because it's so huge and that most of the people in it are going to outlast whoever happens to be president. And this is something, uh, a theme that you, I think, brought up in your in your last uh, episode of, of Common Sense. And so that made me think, who, do, who would you 
to say is better equipped to effectively deal with our enormous, slow-moving, unkillable bureaucratic beast, particularly the national security bureaucracy, uh, Hillary Clinton or, or Donald Trump? Well, at the risk of seeming to to avoid answering the question, there's really <laughs> there's really two schools of thought on this. Okay, one is that that the person who's going to be able to get the bureaucracy to function best in 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 their goals is the person who who has the most experience dealing with it. Um, take for example the idea that Lyndon Baines Johnson as a president was so effective because few people had had as much direct experience with the levers of power as he had. So in that sense, you would say a Hillary Clinton who's used to dealing with with the bureaucracy might be the kind of person most able to get it, to bend it to her goals. On the other hand, there's another school of thought that you need somebody from outside the system for the for the very reason that the bureaucracy tends to be able to roll so well with the political kinds of candidates. I mean, they're very experienced with changes in government. They tend to, uh, as you pointed out, they, they tend to weather any storms very well. Um, there's almost a wink and a nod sometimes, I think, between conventional candidates and the bureaucracy in terms of, OK, we know that that's a real promise versus we know that you're just telling the voters something they want to hear because we both know we're not going to make any changes in that regard. Right. Um, but but on another note, I'd like to point out that that I think Americans often have this idea that we have some sort of a unique situation when it comes to bureaucracy or that somehow this is a new phenomenon. I mean, every government in world history down to Mesopotamia has had this problem and a lot of private corporations where you would think that they would have all of the wonderful capitalistic incentives to you know, trim fat and streamline operations, they often find themselves confronted by similar situations. So it's just a factor of of size and sophistication. I mean, one of the things I had a, a great argument once with a with a real national security hawk who was making the bureaucratic argument and was talking about social programs a lot as something that we needed to deal with because one leads to the other. And I pointed out that there's no way to have the, the sophisticated and, and powerful and large and expensive national security operation that they favor without having the bureaucracy to support it. Right. Basically, the very things that Americans consider to be part and parcel of their modern American society would require a giant bureaucracy regardless. The question then becomes, is there a way to make a bureaucracy better versus a way to allow it to get worse? I mean, uh, 20 years ago, the Clinton-Gore team had a slogan, uh, reinventing government. And there have been similar movements by other presidents in history, which we know because there's a whole school of thought that that you can't do that. Right. And I, And I think that that's a a self-defeating sort of a philosophy. I don't think you know that without trying, and I don't think we've tried enough. It would be an interesting experiment to say, can you improve the situation? And if so, what's a reasonable level of expectation of improvement? Right. Now, do you think in part that in Donald Trump saying, well, I'll put in my own generals who are going to try something different, is that is that sort of uh, going along that path, would you say, or does it need to be broader and deeper for it to have any kind of real effect? There's a catch-22 that anybody coming from outside of government making those kind of claims has to deal with. And that's the fact that if you are a person, we'll just take your example of a military person, but this would apply across the board, um, of somebody who was unconventional enough to be really different is not going to be a person that was embraced during more traditional times. So in other words, let's say he wanted to find the general who really, really thinks outside the box from the current way of thinking. This is a person likely to have been shunned, 
by the current people right. who have the, the worldview that gets you promoted and that seems to be rational and that's considered to be um, uh, reasonable and pragmatic and prudent. People who are wildly outside the mainstream in thoughts, even if they're correct, are not people that tend to get ahead when conditions are normal. So when Trump was first starting to introduce people that he he didn't say that these were going to be his advisors. But if you recall, he sat down with some people It became the first time the media could look at and try to um, evaluate the kind of people he was picking. And they all looked like very conventional people. When you looked at them, you thought, OK, if he's trying to portray himself as this outsider who's going to bring in new ways of thinking, the people that he was sitting down with did not represent that reality. Of course, the problem he has is if he had actually found those people, they might not be generals. They might right. be colonels. <laughs> now, now, isn't isn't it the case, at least a lot of times when it comes to, I'm thinking of wartime examples, that for for one to find find those unconventional people, you, you kind of have to go through a lot of disasters. You go through a lot of generals, lose a lot of battles. I mean, I'm thinking about uh, stuff you talked about in your World War One podcast, for instance, and it just seemed like there was a cavalcade of just horrifically bad generals. And to find that original thinker, you had to suffer quite a lot. A lot of people had to die. It's actually a pretty common dynamic. The most famous one here in the United States is probably uh, the Air Force General Doolittle, who before the Second World War was saying that aircraft will sink ships and all this kind of stuff. And he actually got court-martialed, I believe, for actually demonstrating it. I mean, this was the kind of thing that in peacetime got you in trouble with the rank and file. In wartime, where results become infinitely more important and it's a lot harder to hide your incompetence, those people tend to do better. Uh, so, I mean, I would suggest that the problem with trying to find outside-the-box thinkers is that in more conventional times, those people tend not to get ahead. And so I think if, if Trump really were going to be this outsider, you would have to really go outside the box, maybe find some of these interesting authors or some of these theorists who are promoting very different ways of looking at things. The problem with that, of course, is then you're grabbing people that are not considered to be viable, uh, uh, well-respected figures who are – you know, who, who form the mainstream of, of, for example, defense thinking. Sure. Um, so, I mean, it's a catch-22 if you're trying to think outside the box and yet at the same time appear to be credible. Right, right. That makes sense. Uh, you know, uh, Edward Snowden, the uh, NSA contractor who revealed thousands of classified documents to the media and then eventually fled to Moscow to avoid prosecutions, recently said, if not for these disclosures, if not for these revelations, we would be worse off. And I'm wondering... Do you agree and do you think that President Obama should pardon him as a number of people, including libertarian candidate Gary Johnson, have suggested? I don't think you can look at the Snowden thing or any of the people that fall under the category of what some people, yours truly included, call whistleblowers. I don't think you can look at that in a vacuum. I think you have to say, you know, compared to what? In, in this case, I would say if the United States government is doing a good job balancing out you know, the, the things that they decide to keep secret versus the stuff that they decide to make public, then I think it's a lot easier to say, hey, when people come here and take top secret information and make it available to everyone, those are people who are traitors, to use the word that a lot in government like to use. If on the other hand, and this is the, the point that the whistleblowers often make, if the government is keeping things secret that they should not be keeping secret and that are probably being kept secret less because they worry about how our adversaries will use that information and more because they're worried about how the American people will react to finding out that hidden truth, 
Well, then I think you open up the door to say, hey, a patriot is somebody who releases information that the American people ought to know and that the government isn't telling them because they're afraid that the American people will make them stop doing it if they're aware of it. Hmm. In this case, and by that criteria, Edward Snowden told the American people a lot of things that really helped the national debate. Because when I would have discussions with people, the discussions would always be about, is this happening versus isn't this happening? And we never got any farther than that. When Edward Snowden proved that a lot of those things were indeed happening, well, then when you have a national discussion on this, you can get past that point. You can take it to the next level. So in in my mind, it depends on the information that's being released and how well the government is doing their job of releasing the right information and keeping secret the right information. At this point, the oversight system, in my opinion, has been broken for a long time. Um, The more that happens, the more you open up the door to saying, listen, at this point, whistleblowers are releasing information that if the oversight system were functioning properly would already be public. Right. And these people, I should should also add that many of these people go through the channels that the government themselves put into place so that whistleblowers could release information to the government so that the government could release it to us. And in many cases, they themselves have been punished, which is similar to the reaction whistleblowers sometimes find in the private sector. Yeah, definitely. Well, what would you say the sort of the counter argument I've heard from some people saying that we all know everyone does this, everyone spies on everyone, there are targeted assassinations. This has been, you know, statecraft is a dirty business and it's been that way since the beginning of time. And if we are open about this and our enemies aren't, we're we're essentially unilaterally disarming and putting ourselves at a huge uh, disadvantage and, and opening ourselves up to a lot of risk. I think that that's a misreading of history in a lot of respects. I mean, a perfect example is assassination you brought up. Assassination is something that we do now. We openly do it and we're okay with it as a government and as a defense, whether whether or not we admit it. Whereas back in debates in the middle 1980s, Ronald Reagan and his administration were savaged when it came out that there might have been assassinations going on um, or that the CIA may have been using such uh, ideas as part of their handbook. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that if, if the government is embracing this stuff, they better damn well be sure that the American people back them on this. And most of the time when it's come up, they haven't. Right. And, if, and, and, and that to me, to get back to your earlier question about secrecy, if the secrecy is intended to keep things from the American people because the American people themselves will, will make sure that they're put to a stop if they know about them, then that's a misuse of, of secrecy. If they're doing it to keep our enemies off balance, that's a different thing. The, the hard questions come up when it's a little bit of both. Mm. Um, you know, where, how, how do you make sure Americans know what they should know while still making sure you keep our, our enemies right. or adversaries or competitors off balance? That's the gray area. I would, I would make the, uh, the case that, that we've been nowhere near the gray area lately. We're way over on the other side. And that a, if we're going to right the ship, a rebalancing is necessary along the lines of the committees we saw in the middle to late 1970s that investigated intelligence overreach, like the Church and Pike Committee hearings, the Rockefeller Committee hearings, things like that. Well, and that's that's kind of a common problem in wartime, right? I mean, throughout throughout history, certainly throughout uh, American history, we've seen uh, an increase in secrecy and and government really cracking down. And, and it seems to me that we've been on a war footing in a sense, really, since uh, September 11th, and that's that's a, that's our long that would be our longest war. I mean, is that is this sort of a different thing because it's a war that's seemingly 
has no end. And in all these other cases, the enemy was defeated and we kind of slowly went back, I think, to at least if my read of history is right, kind of went back to a more openness. But that doesn't seem to be happening as much now. You know, President Obama said something, I want to say about a year, year and a half ago. I mean, it, it, it just turned out probably to be mostly words, but I was so happy that it was injected at least into the public debate, which is the question that nobody's really asking about this thing. If, if we're interested when we talk about, for example, this war you mentioned, if we're interested in protecting the country, national security in, 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 in the sense of keeping your system viable, healthy and going forward, you can't be at wartime permanently, which is what this is. I mean, really... In terms of constitutional laws, we were at wartime probably from about 1940 to, well, there was a short period of time after the Cold War ended, say 1991, that maybe you could say we weren't at wartime, but we quickly got back to it, especially after 9-11. That's like saying we're going to have temporary martial law, but it lasts forever. Right. I mean, the, the, the founding fathers were very clear that you cannot have a republic and, and wartime perpetually. They just don't go together, especially since they themselves gave the president extreme extra constitutional powers in wartime, assuming two major things, neither one of which is applicable now. One, that the Congress would be the one deciding to go to war, not the president. That power has gone away. The president can now decide to go to war and has extreme constitutional authority to fight it once he does. That's a major firewall that's been eliminated. The other idea was that the war would be finite, that there would be a surrender at some point. Who's going to sign whatever the other side in this war you want to claim is, who's going to sign the peace treaty on the battleship, you know, in the harbor when the war is over? I mean, there is no way to end this war. This is like this is like deciding you're going to have a war against crime. I don't know when that's going to end. But if you're if you're going to claim extreme executive wartime authority until the conflict is over, but proclaim as your enemy someone that by its very nature can never be totally defeated where does that road lead? And yeah. and the fact that the president at least brought the issue up a year and a half ago or whenever he did was soothing to me because it showed that at least they understand the problem. The fact that we haven't said word one about it afterwards is a little disconcerting. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, there are some people who would advance what I guess I would call the you can't handle the truth argument, saying that, you know, OK, a lot of this may be true, but we just simply can't count on the average American voter to make good decisions given how complex the world is now and so forth. And that one of the problems we have isn't too little uh, democracy and openness, but maybe just a little bit too much democracy and openness. What do, what do you think about that? I would be totally fine with that uh, attitude if they would say it. You know, come out and make that case, right? Tell the American people, you're too dumb, uh, you can't <laughs> handle it, um, and so we're doing this for your own good, and let's see how it plays. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and listen, I'm perfectly fine if they want to bring that up and throw that out there, and let's have a public debate on that. I think we all know why they won't do that. It's the same reason that they keep some stuff secret that's only kept secret because we would freak out if they told us about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I can only imagine yeah. how that. I mean, have the guts to say it publicly and and fight that battle in the intellectual realm. I believe, and they believe too. It's not it's not a fight they can win, so don't have the argument. That's the that's when I get angry because yeah. that's when you feel almost like your government's being. You know, without sounding like some total crackpot, it's it's when you start to feel like your government's being taken from you a little at a time sure. and you have no say in it at all. 
Is your sense that there are a lot of people, I know you've talked to a lot of people, especially in the in the national security establishment and so forth. Would you say that that view is, is not at all uncommon, that, that the people really just couldn't appreciate, couldn't understand what's going on? It's the problem you have whenever you're dealing with experts in any field, as you well know. I mean, people, and it's a human quality, and, and probably deserved, is that when you're studying something all the time, you become an expert, or at least someone who's thought a lot more about it than lay people. It's only natural, especially when you're talking to other people who are experts in the field as you are, to develop this concept that you know better than others you know, about, about your expertise. And I think it's reasonable to assume that's true. The problem is, and there's actually been a lot written about this going back to ancient Greece, about the ability of lay people to make complex decisions upon which they are not experts uh, and, and how well that works in a democracy. But the entire concept of a working representative government depends on, on the idea that voters can make those kind of complex decisions. And if they can't make the decisions on the specifics and merits of the individual issues, they can at least decide which expert they trust more. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm giving you a more sort of historical question, I guess. Some people uh, have compared the modern-day United States to the Roman Empire, and it's not really an analogy I buy, but sometimes I wonder if we aren't in a position that's somewhat like the British in the first half of the 20th century with, uh, with us playing the role of the British and China playing the role of the United States. And I'm wondering if you think there's anything to that analogy and that no matter how much we might pivot to Asia, that the future is inevitably China's and not ours. Well, it wouldn't be the Roman Empire. It would be the Roman Republic where right. I'd see any similarities at all. And if, if you see the similarities, I think you have to base them on the fact that you're probably going to have similar dynamics in systems that are roughly similar. So you take the fact that the Roman Republic was a republic as ours was, and, and the similarities are not coincidental, as I'm sure you're aware. The people who designed our system looked back to earlier systems, and Rome was a perfect example. We have some of the same dynamics when it comes to rich and poor, money and politics, all that kind of stuff. Populism, as we discussed earlier with Trump or Huey Long, I mean, those are all things that near the end of the Roman Republic and the late Republic, they dealt with in spades, with the, the Gracchi brothers or Saturninus, or even some people would say Julius Caesar as representing people uh, who at least made a political career out of appealing to the great masses of people as opposed to the rich and powerful. So these are all dynamics that, that we can recognize, even if they're not perfect, uh, perfect comparables. Um, and I think that's simply because the systems are similar in a broad sense. I don't see the comparison, though, with, with Britain uh, in, the, in recent history, only because one of the key things that, that Britain had that it was dealing with was, was a problem with the long-term viability of relying on their colonies, uh, right. which the United States doesn't have to deal with, and also the, the huge impact of, of the end of colonialization coming after two absolutely ruinous wars – uh, for Britain. So I, I think I think you add those three things together and that's like a triple witching hour for the old British Empire mm -hmm. in a way that I mean, if, if you wanted to say that China appears to be on the rise and the United States in, in relative power sense may be losing some ground. I don't think that's a bad thing to say in terms of reality. I think it's natural, though. I think part of the problem the United States has in rebalancing its its ideas on power relationships is that if you want to use this sort of an approach, we were spoiled 
after the Second World War. I mean, in a relative power sense, I'm not sure there's ever been a country as powerful as the United States was between, say, 1945 and 1965. Really? Oh, I don't don't think – have you ever seen anyone whose power spanned the globe to the same – and and so I think that that the United States – in that sense, got, shall we say, a false sense of, of what it could expect. I mean, take, for example, how often we will talk in the Middle East about the Iranians uh, uh, perhaps gaining a preeminent position in their region. And you want to, you know, to, to tie this in a bow and go back to your question about context earlier, the Iranians have been a power in their region for 3,500 years. <laughs> I mean, that's the natural state of things. So when the United States has problems with things returning to the way that they probably should be, I mean, China is a perfect example. If you are a country as geographically large as they are, as numerically large as they are, as scientifically and educationally oriented as they are, what do you expect? Yeah. You, you, you expect them to not be a force in the South China Sea? That's ridiculous. Right. In order, to, in order to keep the status quo the way it was, you will have to artificially prevent China from asserting the amount of power you would expect it to have in a regional sense. Now, if the Chinese start operating fleets you know, on the west side of Hawaii, on the, on the U.S. west coast side of Hawaii, that's a different question. But to, but to suggest that they shouldn't have regional what's the word, regional power projection capabilities is a little naive. I mean, if we would not accept a certain state of affairs, it's beginning to be less and less viable that we request or expect these other powers to to accept such state of affairs. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I I know we're running a little short of time, but one one final question for you. Uh, In your most recent episode of Common Sense, you said that Part of the problem today is that we're not reading the same books, and I would add we're not re- we're not re- reading the same websites, newspapers, and so forth and so on. And y- you mentioned that you've developed a method of separating out the good information from the bad information or the misinformation, uh, and and that right away that fascinated me. And so I had to ask you about that. What sort of uh, books, websites, sources do you rely on, and what is what is your method? Is it something that, you know, regular people could could use? Boy, there's like three different <laughs> questions in that one question. The first thing is I don't know how you would teach it because it, because I developed it in in journalism as 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 a as a news person and and that's something that news people develop as part of just doing their job. You begin to understand how stories are framed, how ideas are developed in the newsroom, how follow-ups happen, how the interaction between journalists and their sources and the politicians they cover and power. You begin to see how all that works. So then when you watch it, like when I watch a news story on television, I instantly understand how it was put together because like thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who've been in the news business you know, you've done that. It's it's the right. same thing that you would understand if you were in any line of work and somebody were talking about that line of work. You've done it. You understand the intricacies of it in a way, you know, again, like we talked earlier, like a layperson wouldn't. So I'm not sure how you could teach something like that without putting somebody in a situation where, like, go do journalism for five or ten years and <laughs> you'll understand that too. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that that does is when you're in journalism, at least in the day when I was in it, in, in newsrooms, we read a ton. And you were so up to speed. Uh, my my early days in journalism predated the Internet. So it was newspapers. And you became very good. I mean, if there's one thing being in news really taught me is how to read a newspaper quickly. And, and you know, I can go through big, big newspapers. And I still read newspapers. I'm, I'm old-fashioned that way. I, you, I can go through a lot of them very fast. 
And you begin to, to, to look at the exact same stories in multiple newspapers. You begin to look for certain. I mean, after a while, you begin to recognize the same reporters and you begin to recognize the patterns of those reporters. And all of that helps you make sense of stories. Now, every day I read, as many Americans do, the Internet has made this very easy. I read many different sources in multiple countries and I, and I, I compare them off against each other. So, like, you can read uh, the, the RT website, which is kind of a mouthpiece for Russia, as we all know. But as long as you know that, that's valuable, right? right. You want to say, okay, so what are the, what's the line that the Russians are pushing today, right? And then you go to Al Jazeera and you see what they're saying. And then you go to the papers in Israel and you see what they're saying. And then you go to Das Bild in Germany. You see what they're saying. You read the Independent, the Guardian, the Telegraph in Britain. See what the BBC is pointing out. The Washington Post, the New York Times, which are the papers of note. But then you can go to some of the more different ones. I mean, this is all part of of, of finding out then what the establishment mouthpieces are saying. And then you go to some of the non-establishment mouthpieces, whether you're talking about the the truth outs for the left-wing perspective or the the World Net Daily for the sort of the right, I don't know what you call that, the right wing perspective. But I mean, the point is, is that that within about an hour and a half every morning, I've gotten a broad range. And I know there's a lot of Americans that like to do this, too. It's a wonderful facet of the modern age if you're into that. But but it gives you a broad perspective on not just what's out there, but how the different angles on the same stories are being portrayed. And I look at it like a mosaic. And each one of those perspectives and points of view is something that you put in your jigsaw puzzle. And then you look at the black spaces that are still left over blank. And it helps you to sort of make sense in a more, I would say, broad perspective than if any one of those single things had been your only news outlet and you were relying on that. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I think especially uh, the international sources, because a lot of Americans, I think, tend to limit themselves just to domestic sources. And as you point out, you can get a very different view of the world when you look at something like Al Jazeera, for instance. Or how about when the U.S. papers are trying to explain something that's going on in another country, it is so valuable to be able to read that country's own reporters writing to that country's population and see how their view of their current events differs from our view of their current events. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. The Israeli papers, by the way, are wonderful for that in terms of really giving you, I mean, because they have their left-wing papers, their right-wing papers, and I'm fascinated to see their internal debates, just like I'm fascinated to see the internal debates in a lot of these countries. I mean, just reading the migrant situation and how the various media in, in some of these European countries are dealing with that issue has been very educational. Oh, yeah, I'm sure, yeah. Well, I know we're out of time now, but thank you so much, Dan Carlin, for taking the taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your well-thought-out and deep questions. I hope it comes out well. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news throughout the week, and where you can join in, too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would really appreciate it if you could take just a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com.